Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Uh, people have been recommending a book to me by a guy named Locke Kelly, L-O-C-H. He, he wrote a book called Shifting into Freedom. I found an exercise that I really, really like, and I'd like to do that exercise with you. The book is chock full of exercises, and it really is about a psychologically very astute way of moving into non-duality. I'd like each of you to think of a time in your life where you were afraid. Think back in your life recently, not so recently, and remember a time when you felt fear. Uh, see if you can be with it as vividly as possible. What do you see? What do you hear? What does your body feel like? Just being with those feelings. And we're going to investigate this event in deepening emotional shifts using this emotion of fear. And we could then go back and use any emotion, a positive one, a negative one, as the gateway into wholeness. The first thing I would like you to do is, as you remember this event, can you begin to say to yourself, I am afraid. I am afraid.
I am afraid. And as you say, I'm afraid, what does that feel like when you actually are identifying with the emotion itself? And now we make an emotional shift. I feel fear. I feel fear. Notice how things begin to shift. There's a bit more space around your experience. I feel fear. And then shifting again, I am aware of feeling fear. I am aware of feeling fear. The fear is still there, but a very different relationship with it. then I welcome and embrace fear. I welcome and embrace fear. Opening your heart <clears throat> to the feeling of fear. Another shift, fear and awareness are one. There can be no fear without awareness of fear. There's no awareness without an object. Fear and awareness are one. We can't separate the emotion and the awareness of the, uh, the emotion. And finally, resting in loving awareness. Resting in loving awareness.
And without letting go of resting and loving awareness, coming back into the room, coming back into our virtual group. And I'm asking if there are any comments here. We've gone very clearly from identification with an emotion, using it as the gateway to going directly into resting in pure loving awareness. I think that very often one will not be going through each one of those stages, paying attention to, I am afraid, I feel fear, I'm aware of feeling fear, I welcome and embrace fear, fear and awareness are one, resting and loving awareness. But that is the progression that can either even take, can either take two seconds, or if it's a very deeply seated emotion, is something that one can work with over quite a long period of time. So certainly the more space we have around an emotion, the more we can identify with the space than the emotion itself. That very often we get lost in content. And that's something we'll talk about in a few minutes. Opening one's heart to fear is not an easy thing to do. But a couple points here. One is that maybe you start out with this progression with slight irritation or frustration or sadness rather than fear. And maybe the example you picked, I don't know what it was, was such a deep fear that it was hard to open your heart to it. But eventually one begins to notice as practice deepens that opening your heart to an emotion, pleasant or unpleasant, is a step on the path to healing. That even if it is an, uh, a remarkably unpleasant unpleasant emotion, that the more we open to it, it gives the emotion a chance to dissolve and move into the next moment. And to the extent that we're not opening our hearts to our lives, there is resistance, as Mary's example shows, there's lack of relaxation. And a week or two ago, we talked about faith. We could talk about faith in God, but there's also faith in practice. So that when you begin to open your heart to difficult emotions and say, I welcome this, there's movement, there's openness, there's wholeness, there's good feelings begin to arise. One of the great paradoxes of spiritual practice is compassion. And by paradox, I mean that it is very hard to intuitively grasp that moving into suffering with an open heart is the way to heal suffering. There is so much conditioning behind suffering arises, let me get out of here. Let me distract myself, let me push it away, let me do anything but feel this fear, feel this anger, feel this loneliness, whatever it might happen to be. But healing happens through contact with the sacred. Healing happens through your consciousness, your heartfelt consciousness, meeting in a very intimate, yet sometimes fierce way, that which you've been trying to get away from, making conscious that which was previously unconscious. In a way, I think we've, we talked a couple of weeks ago about this thing that I call the tantric three-step. And today we're talking about basically the first step. Last week we talked about grounding, faith, working with fear. Now today we're going to talk about taking that into practice, integrating it into life, and particularly being centered. And the first stage is, can we be with a difficult emotion without making a story about it? What does it feel like in your body to 
have that wall there to be afraid? And then can we open our heart to it? But opening our heart and being with it isn't really something that we have to do. It's more about receiving. It's more about receiving the chi, the, the shakti, the grace that is inherent in each moment. So that when, when you come to that wall, John's wall there, how, do, how does one respond to that wall? Is there self-judgment? Oh, I can't do this. This is too strong an emotion for me. Thomas Merton, who I was just talking to Declan about my son last night, has this great quote. He says, love and prayer are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turns to stone. Love isn't learned in that perfect moment where everything is great. Love is learned in that moment where you're against the wall, when it seems like this is too solid to move through. Can I find the courage? And interestingly, courage comes from the French root word, core meaning heart. It doesn't mean you're strong, you're tough. It means you're willing to trust your heart. Can you find the courage to be with something that is frightening? To me, the real tricky one is fear and awareness are one. Because it's really getting to this point of, of Tantra, of realizing that there is no separation between pure awareness and the object of awareness. So today we're going to be talking about mindfulness, vipassana, bringing practice into daily life, integrating practice. Mindfulness is basically centered awareness. We're always aware. We can't do anything but be aware. If you're drunk, you're, you're aware you're drunk. If your mind is wandering, you're with the wandering mind. Maybe you'd like your mind to be doing something else, but there's nothing that awareness can do other than be aware. But centered awareness, that's mindfulness, being able to be with what's happening in a focused way, in a way that we're choosing, rather than just being buffeted about by experience. So what I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about today is integrating practice into daily life, and particularly from the standpoint of being centered. This is a topic that's very, very dear to my heart, because I have for so long been a really good meditator, and for so many decades was remarkably unable to integrate my practice into my daily life. I would have these remarkable experiences on the cushion, and get up from the cushion and be remarkably neurotic a fact that my teachers were very happy to keep pointing out to me and kind of laughing about it, actually. And in fact, there are two or three very high lamas that when they first saw me, they just started laughing. Uh, <laughs> they didn't say why, they just laughed. Being centered, dropping down into the hara, dropping down into the lower belly, is the energetic stance that allows us to integrate practice into daily life. Last week, we talked about being grounded, which is basically the first couple years of childhood development, trusting, being, being dependent. From then, ages 18 months to about five years old, we're learning to be independent or autonomous. Is it possible to let the chi of the universe, the energy, the shakti, the prana of the universe flow through us in a way that we're acting freely in the world, that even when fear arises, any emotion arises, we can be with that, not be so caught up in why we're feeling things, but being with it and respond in a very natural, open way. There are certainly some schools of Zen that talk very directly about being centered. Most 
devotional, most uh, heart practices, don't really talk much about a foundation. Don't talk about, you've got to be independent and autonomous in order to express the heart. The heart, which we're going to talk about the next couple weeks, is about being vulnerable, trusting spaciousness. But if there is not a independent, autonomous, grounded, centered being there, the vulnerability of the heart is going to be too threatening if the environment is not being supportive. If we have a really supportive environment, here we are in this group together, I'm saying nice things, you're in the in the quiet of your bedroom or your office, wherever you are, okay, then you can open the heart. But suppose then the group is over, somebody calls you up, has some bad news, or you go out outside and somebody comes up to you and coughs right in your face or something like that, can your heart stay open? So the practice is learning to bring centered awareness into daily activity. I think we make certain mistakes. One mistake we make is we underestimate the depth of waking sleep. We underestimate how strong our conditioning is. There was a, a study, which I don't even begin to understand, but the Harvard Business Review did a study and they asked people if they were self-aware and 95% of people said, yes, I am self-aware. But when they ask people more in-depth questions, they determined that 10 to 15% of people were self-aware. Okay, so we, we underestimate how deep is our conditioning, the depth of waking sleep, that how much of the time we're going through our lives in a very automatic way. I remember one time I had done a, a long meditation retreat in Western Massachusetts. And I was driving with some friends back to where we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We stopped at a Howard Johnson's and came into the Howard Johnson's for lunch. And I had this surrealistic experience of feeling that almost everybody in the restaurant was behaving automatically, that there was no free will, that everybody was just a product of their conditioning, that if you had a big enough computer about people's past, you could say, She's going to get the Cobb salad. He's going to get the cheeseburger. It's like there was no, everybody was just like walking around thinking that they were free human beings. And it was like, everybody was asleep. It was like a zombie movie. I was trying to feel that without feeling superior at all. But it was, it was a very strange experience. If you really walk down the sidewalk of any community in America, very seldom do you meet somebody coming the other direction who's really there. People are coming from somewhere, they're going from somewhere, they're lost in their minds, they're thinking about something. How many times do you really meet somebody who's grounded, centered, open-hearted? You can feel the depth of their being. The first mistake we make is to underestimate the depth of waking sleep. Another mistake we make is we underestimate our resistance to practicing. Because sitting down is like John said, he came up against the wall. And when the wall comes up, which it will, time and time again, there will be emotions, there will be sensations, there will be perceptions, there will be thoughts that we don't want to be feeling. It's, it's basically the, the bad news about practice is we keep confronting the parts of ourselves that we're trying to avoid. Ramdas has this great quote, suffering is grace, but for most of it, it takes a very long time to get to the point where we can begin to accept the suffering as grace in our lives because it's pointing the direction to freedom. Are we practicing because we want to not suffer so much? 
or are we practicing because we want to be free? And mostly we're practicing because we want to suffer less. But practicing will uncover suffering, right? So there's, we begin to have to, we have to keep working with motivation. Why am I doing this? Do I really want to be free? Or I'm just trying to create a little more happiness in my life, create some separation from suffering so I can control my mind enough to keep it at a workable distance. The other thing we really underestimate is that we want to feel a certain way. We have notions about here's the way I should feel. I should be happy. I should be concentrated. I should be energetic. And when I'm not feeling that way, something is wrong. I remember when I was in India for the first time for quite a while, I had a very long period of meditation. I had some remarkable experiences. I came back to America and I felt, I am going to recreate these experiences. I'm going to go to Vipassana retreats here in America, and I will have the same experience I had in India. And for like three or four years, I kept trying to recreate those experiences, and I'd really pump up my concentration in the beginning of the retreat. And very often, then the whole thing would fall apart because I wasn't allowing practice to unfold. It was not going to be the way it was in India. It was going to be a different way. One of the most advanced practices is to just sit with whatever is arising. People who have been in my groups for 10 or 12 years come in and say, I had a really bad meditation yesterday. And I say, whoa, what do you mean by that? Oh, the mind didn't, the mind didn't settle down. There was a lot of uh, distraction, a lot of thoughts coming and going. But maybe that is a better meditation, a more useful meditation than one in which through serendipity, everything falls into place and there's a lot of calmness and it feels great and you wake up afterward. I mean, not wake up, but you get up like Susan was saying, oh, at the end I felt this and Mary was relaxed. All those things are great. But learning to work with the edge, how do you know what the edge is if you don't go beyond it sometimes, right? We, we get lost again and again. That's the good news. We're beginning to find out where we're stuck. One way of talking about practice is there's practice with a goal and practice without a goal. Practice with a goal is I'm trying to become happier. I'm trying to identify the patterns. I get angry. I get frightened. I get neurotic in this way or that way. And then I, I can do compassion practice. I can do Tonglen for the part of me that's getting stuck. But practice without a goal. You're not trying to be happier. You're not trying to improve your practice. You're just going to sit there and be with whatever it is. You're going to receive life full on without a filter, life unfiltered. The German film director Werner Herzog said, I'm saturated with life. I just love that image of being saturated with life, letting it come just the way it is. But that takes being centered, realizing that you can hold your seat in a metaphorical sense, no matter what it is that happens. So we're talking about really being willing to lose yourself to find yourself. And so John comes up to that wall. It's hard to lose yourself into fear, to embrace fear, because to do that, you've got to be somebody that is not who you were 10 seconds ago. It's like dying into somebody that you don't know you are yet. And a lot of practice in uh, some fundamental way is about coming up and dealing with fear of death, coming 
to that place where you're holding on to, I am this person and I'm John, I'm Dale, I'm a meditator, I'm a good meditator, I'm a bad meditator. Don't know. Surrendering into that place. And so we're talking here about being centered. Being centered is dropping down into the hara, the lower belly. In, in Japanese, hara literally means sea of chi. We're dropping down into that place from which martial arts are done. What we're saying about martial arts are done, it's not very good language. It's more we're able to receive the chi, the universal energy that creates action. We aren't acting. We're letting God or the universe, the chi, operate through us. And that is a constant dropping down, a surrendering, a surrendering of the notion of this I, this CEO that's up in our heads, that is supposed to be in control of our lives according to the way we're thinking about it. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. So there's this thinker up there who's, who's trying to survive, and he's got a really hard job because the ego structure doesn't exist. It's only a concept. It's a verb. It's not a thing. And not only that, all the spiritual practice is designed to make it go away. So the ego structure has a re really difficult job to keep convincing you that you're this solid person, that there's a you who needs to be protected and solidified and taken care of in all these crazy ways, which is a, a full-time job pretty much. Can we begin to be centered enough that we can see how suffering is arising as we're holding on to those concepts up here and practice this dropping down, this dropping down, letting down? I have a PhD in math, and it took me 20 years to do what I'm talking about right now. I'm a very stubborn case. Hopefully for you, it'll only take 10 years, which is kind of a joke, but maybe not. Is it possible to let your identity drop down into your belly, which will then be the foundation for opening the heart? When we're feeling this sense of solidity, like you're this samurai warrior of your life where you can do what needs to be done, then it feels safe to open the heart. Then we can be with people who don't like us. Then we can love what's going on in the world, even though they're suffering, even though we might not even like it, but we can keep the heart open. The heart will not stay open if we don't have this foundation. Let me just say a few things about integrating practice into daily life. So can we begin to do practice with gratitude rather than as a duty? Are we practicing because we're trying to push suffering away? We're suffering so much. I've got this duty to try to improve myself. Or can we really be grateful for the Dharma, grateful for these practices that we know, we know deep in our bones will really lead to freedom? Can we begin to change our practice from why is this happening to what is happening? As long as we're asking why, as long as we're trying to figure things out, that's the ego structure's attempt to keep staying in charge. Why is almost never a useful spiritual question. So that practice evolves from we're caught in things. Why is it happening? Oh my God, why is this happening? To the mindfulness embodiment stage of what is happening right now. To then the heart stage, which we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks is what is my relationship with what it is that's happening right now? And then we get to the tantric stage to what is the nature of this content? 
we're not even so concerned about our relationship with it, but our loving relationship has opened up that everything has this sacred nature, this sense of beingness or awakeness, no matter what the content is, and that I myself am that deity that I invoked in the beginning. We're really learning to balance stress and relaxation. Being centered is finding a balance of right tension and right relaxation. If you're too tense, you can't practice. If you're too relaxed, you're not going to be able to practice. But even as we're talking right now, is it possible to bring your attention down into your lower belly? If you want, you can put, put your hand down there. We're talking about a different way of physically breathing, actually. We know that upper chest breathing leads to stress. In diaphragmatic breathing, the upper chest, the upper belly, the lower belly rise as you breathe in, and as you breathe out, they all collapse and relax. But in horror breathing, as you breathe out, you maintain some strength in the lower belly. It seems artificial, it seems kind of strange in the beginning, but if you could imagine that you had a big blood pressure cuff around your lower belly, that the pressure there remains constant whether you're breathing in or out. You're finding this, this balance of tension and relaxation so that as you're breathing out, there's still some stability and strength in the lower belly. Breathing in, nice easy in-breath. Out-breath, it's full, strong. Letting go of the shoulders letting go of the lower belly, but maintaining strength in the lower belly. Dropping down in the lower belly, this constant dropping down, the mind will complain. The ego structure will say, you're, you're ignoring me, I don't like this. Please come back and let's think about this before you completely abandon me. Just notice that thought with the next out breath, drop down into the lower belly. Now, is it possible to open your eyes, come back into the room, and remain centered? Is it, is it possible we can begin to integrate this mindfulness into activity? And I'm really a big fan of a lot of short meditations during the day. It's great if you have the time, the life, and particularly now when you're not traveling around as much to sit down for 30, 40, 50 minutes at a time. But can you do a lot of two-minute meditations during the day? Uh, you notice you're getting scattered, you're up in your mind a lot, you've been a Zoom call for too long, you're on your computer, you're on the phone. And is it possible, like even right now, to be centered as you're receiving information? Or could you have a conversation with somebody you care about and put a lot of your attention on being centered? So that often when we're meditating, we're putting about 90% of our attention or more on what's going on inside. What is it like to be with my breath or to be centered or, or to watch my emotions? 
10% is on the environment so that you're paying attention enough that the house started burning down, you could run out of the house. Often we're out in the world, 90% of our attention is what's going on out there in the environment, maybe 10% on our interior state, energetic state. Is it possible that we can play with that percentage? What would it like to be living your life 50% paying attention? Am I centered? Am I grounded? Is my heart open? 50% out there? Or could you even talk to somebody where, say, 80% of your attention is on being centered and seeing if you can trust words, relationship coming out of being present, particularly if you have a relationship where you're spending a lot of time talking about our relationship. Can you drop beyond that mind level into, I'm going to be present and see what it's like to trust being with who I am and being with this other person and and see what happens there. Finding emotional granularity. Many people only have five or six emotions that they're aware of. Happy, sad, angry, frightened, tired. And there are literally sheets where people write down hundreds and hundreds of different emotions. The more granular you can be with what it is you're feeling, the easier it will be to be mindful of what's going on and to not be caught in that particular feeling. Often in in some 12-step programs, they find that people are addicted. And my, my humble opinion is that everybody's addicted until you're enlightened. When you're addicted, you don't have emotion, a lot of emotional granularity, at least in certain parts of your life. So that they give people these sheets. There's like 18 kinds of happiness or anger or 20 kinds of sadness or whatever it might be. And you begin to look at all these different descriptions of emotions, and that will help you be a lot more present. The other thing I think is very important, at least in my practice, is beginning to distinguish between deep sensation, the deep emotion, and what's going on on the surface. That often we're on the surface. There's a thought, there's a distracting thought, there's an emotion. But what is going on underneath that everything is being filtered through? You're feeling kind of depressed, or you're feeling grief, or you're feeling really happy, you can pay attention to the thoughts and the emotions that are up there on the surface, but they're all being filtered through that. And we it's very easy to miss the forest for the trees. As you're paying attention to all these little things, you're not really aware that you're depressed. You're not really aware that you're sad. So that occasionally to change the focus from the telescopic view to the microscopic view, or maybe it's the other way, who knows, but you drop down into what is going on underneath here? What are, the, what are the deeper sensations? And one of the voices that is the most difficult to deal with is the superego, the inner critic, which is the place that for most of us, there is that voice that's saying, pay attention to me. I'm the one that will help you survive. You learned about me when you were very tiny, when it was hard to survive. And if you don't pay attention to this, you're, you aren't going to survive. Can we even bring compassion? Can we bring love to the superego? Can we be aware of that voice rather than believing it? In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a quality called Shenpa, and that's the quality of being hooked, S-H-E-N-P-A. Pema Chodron talks about it a lot. It's that quality where you're going along and all of a sudden just grabs, something grabs you. You've got some concept that you're so identified with 
that you aren't able to be present for it. Those are just some, some tricks I've used in my life to integrate practice into daily life. Practice isn't worth too much if it's only something you do when your eyes are shut and you're not moving around. If it's only something that happens when, quote, you're meditating, unquote. Somebody once asked one of my teachers, how can I tell if my meditation practice is really working? And he said, are you becoming kinder to other people? And I thought that was really a great answer. It's possible to get more concentrated and more of an expert on meditation and become more of a jerk. <laughs> people do this. We know people who do this. <laughs> we are people who do this sometimes, right? So the point is, can we be aware enough that we're beginning to see I'm not being very kind here in traffic. I'm not being very kind as I'm checking out at the grocery store or with my partner, whatever it might be. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a concept called Shenpa, S-H-E-N-P-A, and it means being hooked. So that you're going through your day and something happens. You hear something on the news or somebody calls you up and you just grab onto a topic and you, you're, you're caught in the sense of being hooked. You're identified with something. There's a sense of lack of spaciousness. So that when we did that Locke Kelly thing in the beginning of, I am afraid, that's being hooked. You're identified with the emotion. It's the very first stage where there's no spaciousness around the feeling at all. When we're talking about fear, maybe that's a kind of an obvious example. But suppose that what we're talking about is a more subtle sense of anxiety that we're hooked in all the time, that we're just assuming that living in the time of, of pandemic, that there should be some anxiety, that that's the human condition. Or suppose you're assuming that this background condition of subtle grief is who you are, and you don't even pay attention to it because it's been there for so long, that that's the more subtle kind of shenpa. It's not necessarily the big fear where oh, this big horrible thing happens. But what is it that keeps us from being free? Ask yourself the question, how alive am I willing to be? How alive am I willing to die into the next moment? And there are voices from early childhood when we, our very survival was at stake. We were not able to take care of ourselves where we internalized superego, inner critic, and felt that we had to be good or we were going to be getting in trouble. Or, or we weren't going to be fed if we didn't do this or do, do that. That has become so much a part of our experience that we don't even notice it as something that can be noticed anymore. I would go to long meditation retreats, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. There would still be a voice in me that was monitoring how I was doing. And that that voice was not open to awareness. Does that make sense? The part of me that's saying, Dale, you're not doing, you're not a very good meditator right now. I believe that voice rather than seeing it. That's just another thought that's no more important than what's for lunch. Because it was the voice that very early on had been my quote, road to survival, if you will. So that Shenpa is, is very persistent. It's very, very sticky. In this first stage of practice of getting grounded and getting centered, we begin to notice 
And for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's a somatic experience of what does it feel like to be free? And what does it feel like when there's Shenpa there? Now, it's not black and white. It's not zero one. There's a, like, there's a spectrum, right? That you're, you're partly free and partly stuck. And can we keep working with the partly stuck part without feeling it's a duty or we're not doing well enough? I mean, a lot of practice is about receiving grace. So interestingly enough, the Tibetans talk a lot about learning to be awake when you're asleep, when you're actually sleeping, that they feel lucid dreaming is very good preparation for enlightenment. That if, if you can be awake when you're actually physically asleep, it'll help you be awake when you're in waking sleep. And in fact, there's a monastery in Northern California called the Land of the 10,000 Buddhas, where the monks there never lie down. They sleep sitting up because they, they feel if you lie down, your sleep is so deep that it's hard to be awake when you're sleeping. Okay, so that's a little extreme for me. I like lying down. I'm One of my favorite things is to lie down. In fact, I think a wonderful practice is meditating lying down. It'll be a different kind of awareness, but you might try tonight when you're going to bed. Lie flat on your back, no pillows, your spine is straight. And how present can you be as you're going to sleep? Can you, can you go to sleep while aware? I was at a meditation retreat once and I went in to see the teacher and he, for the interview and he said, did you go to sleep last night on an in-breath or on an out-breath? And my first thought was, I'm at the wrong retreat. I have no idea and I don't even care. But the, the magic answer is that you always go to sleep on an out-breath, the letting go, right? awareness will not always have the same brilliance. That if, in fact, you're really tired and you're kind of lethargic and there's waking, you're like not really present, but you're a little present, then the quality of awareness won't be the same. But that's okay. What we're talking about here is learning to be present no matter what the circumstance is. When you're dying, there might be a lot of opioids in your bloodstream. When you're dying, you might be in a car where somebody you love a lot is screaming in terror. When you're dying, you might be lying on the floor of CVS and a stranger's ripping your chest off and breathing in your mouth, your shirt off your chest and breathing in your mouth. I mean, think of that. There you are. There's some stranger breathing in your mouth. Learning to be present, even if the quality of awareness is not the same as during meditation. Every situation in life is open to awareness. The depth of awareness changes depending on what's going on. And it's really important to begin to distinguish between concentration and mindfulness. They're very related, but they're very different. Concentration is the ability to keep your mind in the present and push everything else away. Just like Mr. Webster would say in the dictionary, concentration temporarily suppresses the causes of suffering, but does not uproot them because you're pushing the causes of suffering away. Mindfulness is the ability to have a centered awareness in the moment as the moment is changing. So that just as an example, a kind of a made up example here, suppose tonight it's late and I'm, I'm, I decide I'm going to meditate before I go to bed tonight. And I sit down, I'm really tired. I'm trying to watch my breath, which is not the way I meditate, but let's just assume that's what I'm doing. 
I'm really tired. My mind is not wandering. It's just barely there with the breath. I'm not seeing the nuance at all, but it's not wandering. So there's a lot of concentration, but not much mindfulness. So I decide this isn't a lot of fun. I'm going to drink some caffeinated beverage and I, I get a lot of caffeine energy in my body. And now the mind is jumping all over the place as I try to meditate, but I'm watching all of those jump. There's not much concentration, but there's a lot of mindfulness. Mindfulness uproots the causes of suffering. Even if you're really tired, to just notice the tiredness, to notice the reaction to the tiredness, it won't be the same as just having meditated for three hours or something, obviously. One teacher said the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. No matter whether you're really tired or whether you're really awake or whether you've been uh, having two glasses of wine or whether you're in a traffic jam. We've got this developmental healing paradigm. And from the Vipassana embodiment stage that we've been talking about today, when anger arises, the instruction is, can you be mindful of the anger, just be with it, and eventually you replace it with something positive. You don't sin. You, you replace it with something positive. Next couple of weeks, we're going to be dealing with the heart stage so that when anger arises, can you have compassion for the part of you that's angry? And that the compassion will gradually wear away the anger, the angry part of you. And then this time in three weeks, we're going to be at the tantric stage where when anger arises, you instantaneously transmute anger into its wholesome components so that anger is really very similar to cutting through discriminating wisdom, the energy that distinguishes between wisdom and ignorance. So you just instantaneously transmute it. But in each of these, if you look carefully enough, it doesn't even have to be too carefully, you see that anger is a problem. We're either being aware of it and replacing it, we're transforming it through compassion, or we're transmuting it. But eventually, in the stage of non-duality, it's all the beloved. Anger is just anger. Anger is not a problem. If you see it as a, a pure expression of wholeness, anger and non-anger, any dualities are equally divine. And that is, of course, a big relief. And if you go to a retreat where you're not doing Vipassana or Zen, you're doing Dzogchen or Mahamudra, it's a very relaxing retreat because as soon as you notice you're caught somewhere, you realize that even the caughtness is God, right? <laughs> There's nothing you could be experiencing that's not it. And as soon as you think it's not it, the thinking it's not it is it. <laughs> okay. Thank you all so very much. Lots of love. Stay safe, be happy, and it's, it's a, a real pleasure for me to be with all of you guys. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.